Alex L. once said, I accept that after all the darkness we face in this life, there can and will be light. Now, this is quite a powerful statement. And it complements the feel it to heal it movement that we're facing the darkness with the promise of light. Welcome to episode 10, where we'll bring everything together on the feel it to heal it movement. Now, 24 years ago, when I was first widowed, I felt like a misfit. I was grief illiterate and I was grief phobic. And so was the world around me. I ended up stuck in my bedroom for two months, curled up in a ball. Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate, couldn't keep appointments. I just didn't know what to do. And left to my own, I might not have figured it out, but somehow I found my way to grief recovery workshop at Hospice Peterborough, and it saved my life. What it basically did is it dealt with the things from my past that were unresolved. Communications, things that were unsaid, or were unheard, or were misunderstood, or I didn't understand. So the workshop helped me to learn how to lose things, because there I was. I didn't know how to lose a wife. I didn't have a clue. And by taking that workshop, it got me off that isolated grief island, and it sent me down my grief river, that slow meandering river that will take me where I needed to go. Now, over the next 24 years, I built resilience. And then last year, I was widowed again. Now, something was different last year. The pain was deep, deep, deep. My soulmate had died. Of course, it was painful, so painful. But the suffering didn't last as long. And uh, it led me to a journey that here we are today, because I wanted to figure out why. And part of it was, I was living with some Buddhist type feelings that there's impermanence right? Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. In my case, both were inevitable, but the length of the suffering was optional. Something was different in 2022 than in 1998. And I dedicated the last year to figuring out what the heck that was. And that led to this movement. So, the first thing is in episode two, let's look at why we don't know how to lose things, right? Because 24 years ago, I didn't know how to lose things. I lived with the six myths that the Grief Recovery Institute talks about. But in 2022, I had already reversed those myths and my life was different because all the grief work I did 24 years ago paid off for all of my tomorrows. And I became more resilient, generally in life, but specifically around losing things, people, losing whatever I lost. So my resilience level helped me, and it truly helped me last year. So last year, instead of the first myth of don't feel bad, when I wanted to feel bad, I felt bad. I felt whatever was in the present moment. And that's very different than burying your can of worms, right? And remember, the Grief Recovery Institute talks about, oh, 
soothing yourself with food. A little girl comes home, I was bullied at school. Here's a cookie, don't feel bad. All of a sudden you grow up soothing your emotions with food, booze, drugs, shopping, unhealthy sex, gambling, whatever. And this is what goes back to what Lois Hall said in her comment about this unresolved grief that the world carries. And we're not throwing our ancestors under the bus, but we weren't taught how to lose things. Now, the second myth, just go out and replace the loss. Remember your puppy die, a dog dies and all of a sudden a puppy shows up the next day and nobody's brought closure to the first dog? That's replacing the loss. Or when you're out dating and, and you have a breakup and you immediately go because there's plenty of fish in the sea, as you were taught, just go find somebody else. And that rebounding, when you become an adult, if you rebound and get married, that's part of the reason why people aren't staying together because they've been replacing the loss. So instead of that, take the time to deal with the feelings around your loss, become a little more and more wholehearted, although your heart may never get back to where it was. When you're more wholehearted, you're making your decisions based on something other than replacing the loss. Grieve alone. If you're going to cry, go to your room. We were taught that. But in episode three, I talked about you building a witness team so that you don't grieve alone. And this witness team is very, very unique because they can take these 10 episodes and learn how to be a witness to somebody grieving. And they can learn that you're not broken, you're stuck. You don't need to be fixed, you just need to be witnessed. And as the Grief Recovery Institute talks about, the witness wants to have a big heart and two ears and no mouth. They witness. They'll ask you things like, do you mind if I ask where your grief has taken you today? A very warm and open statement that allows the griever to tell if they feel like sharing, right? And the griever, you make sure the witness knows what you need because they're not mind readers. Hey, David, thanks for coming over. I'm pretty sad today. Could you cut my lawn? I'd love to cut your lawn, but I don't know if you want me to cut the lawn unless you tell me. So uh, the griever and the witness can bond very well. And it doesn't mean if you're in a deep, deep cry for a couple hours that you bring someone over to watch you cry. No. After you've had that grief chunk, reach out to somebody and just tell them how, how it's going today. And you can use a different person every time so you don't burn anyone out. So you can see that, that, how that myth works. Now the fourth myth is it just takes time. Time heals all wounds. I'll give you a good thing to do here is think of your grief as a flat tire. So if you have a flat tire and you get your lawn chair and you sit and you watch it for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, it's not going to fix itself. Time and corrective, small corrective steps will fix it. So your grief is like a flat tire. I can't just sit and let it heal itself. I need to do some corrective steps. And uh, the fifth one is to be strong or be strong for others. Well, the reverse of that is, no, I don't have to be strong. The Institute talks about you can either be human or strong. Pick one. Lady goes to the doctor and says, my daughter's so distraught about her dad dying. All she does is goes to the room and cries and she won't talk to me. And the doctor said to the, to the widow, so what do you do 
when you feel sad. She's, and the lady said, well, I go to my room and cry. So no one wants to be weak in front of each other. They go hide in their weak moments and they come out and do this, what's called the Academy Award performance. That look how strong I am. You hear people say, oh, did you see how strong they are? They're doing very well in their grief. They might be if they're resilient or they might be putting on that Academy Award performance the Institute talks about. Because we're taught not to show our grief. We're taught to keep it hidden. Make it invisible to those around us because they don't want to witness it. They're uncomfortable with it. Even though it's anything but invisible to us, as David Kennedy mentioned. So you have to be who you are in the present moment. If you're strong, be strong. If you're weak, be weak. Be vulnerable. Remember, your witness team is fine with you feeling what you feel when you feel it. And the others who don't know how to deal with it, it's not important right now, right? It's not important right now. And the last one is just stay busy. That's an exhausting um, myth. Reversing that is maybe not stay as busy. Reduce the things in your calendar. Look to have your calendar to have doing things and to have being time. So if you look at my calendar, it's not overflowing anymore. It used to be. I exhausted myself. I was been there. I was there. I got the t-shirt even. But now I run a balanced calendar and there's room for being. And it really helps you to be in the present moment. So you see those six myths. Now, if you want to read the four agreements, the Toltec philosophy, it's an amazing book. And what it teaches us is it's okay to take everything we learned as a child and challenge it and reverse it. And that's actually what we want to do with these myths is live the reverse of them. So there we are. Now we're up to episode four. And in this episode, just be a second, we, you get to witness me actually grieving. And this was a very difficult episode to record and taking a real risk here, showing my most vulnerable moments, my deepest, darkest feelings at the deepest, darkest times of my life. But I did it for a reason because I believe if I could help one person not stay stuck on their isolated grief island, all this is worth it. Because 24 years ago, when I was on it, it was horrible. I, I don't even like thinking about the, that time, that phase in my life. So <clears throat> I talked about grief triggers. That's To me, that's what they are. And they can be any size, shape, come from anywhere. It can be triggered by anything. The one 24 years ago lasted two months. Sometimes they last a microsecond, right? In process out. I believe without exaggerating, I would have over a thousand triggers in the first year after becoming widowed. And some of them don't last very long. And sometimes you could have 20 in a day. Other days you have none. And some of them you can predict and some of them you can't. But that's why becoming resilient and learning how you can grieve. And the way you grieve is different than me. We all grieve differently. We all have different life experiences that got us here and we all do things differently. And again, my journey is not yours, but it's an example to get you thinking about your journey. But one way or another, name it to tame it. So if a grief triggers just there and it 
hits you somewhere, acknowledge it. That's the first step, right? And then do whatever you do. I invite mine into tea. I ask questions of it. It asks questions of me. I feel it in my head. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my stomach. And I watch it go up my toes. If it needs a second one, I do it. If it needs more than two, then I say, oh, this is a longer grief. And I accept what is. Because that's the biggest benefit of being in the present moment is witnessing and accepting what is. Remember? It isn't what happens to us that matters. It's what we do with what happens to us that matters. So when that trigger hits, don't bury it in your can of worms. Deal with it. And this whole journey, the key to this whole journey of healthy grief and healthy grieving is being in the present moment, accepting and letting go, right? And the workshop looked after my past, so I don't have to go back and lament and, you know, feel guilty or I don't have to any of that. I, I've brought closure to all that. But in the present moment, I feel what is. Knowing what David Kessler said is that grief isn't just about the loss. It's the story of the loss and the story lasts our lifetime. So I've had two wives that died and I'm going to think of both of them for the rest of my life. So I might just as well get on with the inevitable and build the tools to deal with that grief when it shows up, whatever form it does, right? And remember, my grief comes in the liquid form with tears, not alcohol. And uh, feel it to heal it. Let, it. let it come, right? I'll talk later about me seeking out moments of grief so that I could feel a trigger and purposely feel it. So this is the key to the whole grieving universe is to recognize grief and get some skills to deal with it in the present moment. Can you imagine if I didn't deal with my grief 24 years ago? I'd have over a thousand triggers from 1998. I would have piled on all the losses I had between then and now, and I would have fired another thousand triggers into that can of worms. It would have been a big, giant, ugly mess. And it matters what we do with grief. Remember we hit that crossroads? Am I going to bury this journey I'm, I'm faced with now? I didn't choose this loss, but here it is. Am I going to bury everything around it? Am I going to end up with what World Health Organization talks about complex and compound grief? That means I'm not stuck. I'm probably broken and I need counseling. Do I want to go down that journey? Or do I want to face the inevitable? and live in the present moment and learn how to deal with my losses, learn how to lose things, build my resilience level higher than it was. And then as losses that are smaller are under my resilience level, they don't knock me off the rails. I have the resilience to deal with them. And then when something's bigger than my resilience level, I have the tools to deal with it. So right now I'm sitting here, I'm the medicine. I don't need medication. I'm the medicine. I'm where I'm supposed to be right here right now because of a healthy grief recovery journey. Now, I think episode six is about our brain because up till now we've talked about our heart and my logo shows you where you might be on the heart spectrum. I was at the far left both times I was widowed and I moved over towards being more wholehearted. And I'm personally a resilient griever, which is very 
time consuming to get to and you can get to it but you it, it it's it's a ultra marathon it's a marathon degree but it's an ultra marathon to become resilient griever but it's very doable and i didn't do it on purpose it was just the way my life lived so the brain has a, a role in this. In episode six, we found out that we have what's called a hippocampus, which is a map or plan of our life. And as, as really fast as this gray matter computer called our brain works with all kinds of things, you know, it can move things and fight or flight and we can make good decisions quickly and we processing and, you know, all kinds of things. But when it comes to our plan in the hippocampus, it, is slow to change. Both times, I was with a wife for about 10,000 days, 30,000 meals, 100,000 conversations. My hippocampus was trained 20, 20 uh, 44 years ago when I got married. My hippocampus learned about living with my first wife and it learned all about where to find her and you know even if she was out of town I knew how to reach her and we were connecting and we we're building we we're building electronic connections uh, to each other and and the plan was solid it was the same the second 20 some years but what happens is when somebody dies most of you realize is they've gone. You all witnessed the funeral. You might even organize it. You've all seen the burial. Like factually, your brain knows, but your hippocampus doesn't. It says, no, nope, she's out there somewhere. Keep looking. And that's why grieving is so painful and tiring and exhausting and you get headaches and you, because you're, you're living in a world where they're not there, but your brain thinks they're there. You might see them in a chair. You might visualize them. And it's okay to have a spiritual connection with your loved one the rest of your life. That's not the part, but it's when your brain fights the obvious that you've had a loss. That loss can't be reversed, right? If you broke your guitar, you can go buy a new guitar. You can buy the same model and it'll look the same, but you can't replace people. You can't. But your brain needs these experiences. To me, it needs the triggers to be dealt with in the present moment and felt and lived and witnessed. And you keep doing that and you keep doing that. And over time, your hippocampus learns, oh, I get it. She's not coming back. Okay, what do we do on that birthday? Okay, well, it takes a couple of birthdays to get it. But now you got how to celebrate their birthday when they're not there and your religious holiday if you, or spiritual holiday if they're not there how to go to a restaurant without them. So you're learning all these things and you're training that hippocampus. This is how you lose a spouse. So that's what I did those early years, 1998 to maybe 2002. I don't know how long it took. I don't want to put a number on it because we're all different, but that's why in 2022, when I was widowed the second time, boom, deep, deep pain, but my mind, body, and soul said, oh, and I don't want to lighten this or disrespect anything about this, but my mind, body, and soul basically said, oh, lose a wife? We know how to do that. And it kicked in. 
And it took me to the Grief River without me even needing to jump in. And it started taking me where I needed to go. A couple weeks into it, my pain was deep, but my suffering had gone. I was living in a duality of sorrow and joy, right? And it was real. And that's why I took this journey. I said, what the heck happened here? Because I wasn't skipping steps. It just was what it was. So training the brain is just as important as mending the wounded heart. And that's why in episode seven, I introduce you to the feel it to heal it daily affirmations. I've been doing some of these for a long time, but I added the grief ones last year, bit by bit. And the daily reading of those helped condition my brain and my whole being on where I'd like this vessel to go. It might not be there yet, but that's where I'm heading, right? Accepting what is and taking control of an out of control situation. And those daily affirmations were huge. And I still use them when I feel I'm just off kilter a little. I'll, I'll go to the daily affirmations and they might get me back to the present moment. It's a tool I use. It's a do-it-yourself tool that you can use. And I think I've explained how to build it in a safe and effective way. So now I want to talk about the future. And if you watched episode eight, I don't have to recreate it. But using the feel it to heal it calendar, I was able to follow philosopher Seneca's advice and not be miserable about future misery, right? And I'm not going to restate exactly how that calendar works. Reread the, re-listen to the episode if you need a refresh. But it really allowed me to clear my present moment for present moment thinking. It was a real gift. And it's a gift for you if you can learn to do it. And it may take you a while, but, but don't give up, right? Keep coming back. And that calendar really worked. And I want to focus on that trigger of cycle touring. I put it down and I, as something I needed to do. Then I crossed it off and scheduled it and actually lived it. And that lived experience, I purposely went out and I faced that trigger head on. It was sweet and sour, as I said, really sour. But I celebrated all the pain that I got out of my system over that month. And that's how you live triggers. The restaurants, right? Go to a restaurant on your own for the first time. It's horrible. It's just horrible. Where, where am I here? What a loser. People are staring at me. You know, little voices go in. And, and then the second time is a little less painful. And then now it's, it's, a, it's a nothing burger. It's not an issue. Lived experiences, facing those grief triggers in the present moment and actually proactively going after the closure to those, right? Now, after the workshop, and when our, when our witness team's not available and we're falling a little to the side or we're not focusing like we want, we pull out what I talked about in episode nine is the feel it to heal it steering wheel. And that's a 
like a mission statement or a vision that's actionable. You write it, you tailor it, and you change it as you go. But it's a place you can go back to, to reconnect yourself with, with your vision. And I use that all the time, especially when I was off a bit and didn't know what to do. Where am I? What am I supposed to do now? Why am I doing this? And it just sharpens your focus again. So there you have the feel it to heal it movement. Well, as you know, these 10 episodes are not just my lived experience, but also deep, deep information I've gleaned from many professional resources, and I'd like to acknowledge them now. A great big shout out to the Grief Recovery Institute, who for over 35 years have helped clients process their unresolved grief. David Kessler, the key things he provided with the isolated grief island and the grief river and other things. David Kennedy, Red Keating and Julie Brown, from Hospice Peterborough. Neuroscientist Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor in The Grieving Brain. Neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman. And neuroscientist Dr. Caroline Notbart. Dr. Margaret Strobe and Henry Shute for the dual process model. Lois Hall of the Grief Recovery Institute. Gwenda Lambert. Dr. Lucy Hone. Psychologist Dr. Edel Tolving, psychotherapist Andrea Warnick from the Sick Kids Toronto Hospital, psychotherapist Dr. Nathan Brandon, philosopher Seneca, philosopher Marcus Aurelius, the Daily Stoic, the Four Agreements and the Toltec Philosophy, Alessandra Slajosevic. Laura Jack, Kelly Lynn, Nancy Guthrie. Now to all those who provided quotes to the episodes. Lois Hall, Christopher Day and King Goo, Laura Jack, Elizabeth Gilbert, Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, Bruce Lee, Philosopher Seneca, Amanda Sellers, and I'd also like to thank all the people who provided the affirmations to me. Now, I started building my affirmation list many years ago, and I didn't have the view of making it public, so I didn't keep track of where some of the affirmations came from. So for those that I know, here they are. Lisa Culpa, Alex L., Selena Lari, Skip Jennings, Jonathan Lieberman, Lala Delia, Andrea Pennington, Kenneth Soares, Amanda Sellers, Jason McGrace, Selena Lal, Zawadi Nyong. And finally, I'd like to thank all of you for witnessing these episodes, and I hope they've helped you build and live your own healthy grief recovery journey. I also hope that maybe it helps some of the people who are witnessing your journey. And I ask all of you to share this set of uh, podcasts to anyone who you think would benefit from these. And again, thank you. Bye for now.